You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. We are talking about the half of it today in our continuation of Pride Movies. This film is available on Netflix, so if you have a Netflix subscription, it's relatively free. (laughs) (laughs) This film came out in 2020. It's directed by Alice Wu. She was also the writer, and it stars Leah Lewis, Daniel Deemer, Alexis Lemire, Becky Ann Baker, who a lot of you would recognize as Leah Dunham's mom from Girls. It was filmed a lot in New York and New York City, which is interesting because I like upper state New York because the story is set in Western Washington. And I believe there is a film community in Western Washington. (laughs) (laughs) So they very well could have. So this would have been cheaper. Yeah, I would think so. The synopsis for this film is when smart but cash-strapped teen Ellie Chu agrees to write a love letter for a jock, she doesn't expect to become his friend or fall for his crush. So classic Cyrano de Bergerac story. The tagline for this film is a different kind of love story. A little bit of trivia. I was curious how many films have been made with the Cyrano theme because I knew of one from 1987 starring Steve Martin called Roxanne. The truth about cats cats and dogs is a version of this theme. This is a fun one. We haven't done it yet. We probably should. Yeah, I think it is on the list. It's also from 1987. There are 11 actual films titled Cyrano de Bergerac, ranging from 1990 to 2021. And then there are 14 derivatives of it using the theme. And they go back all the way 1945 Love Letters by Anne Rand. Hmm. And then the aforementioned Roxanne and Truth About Cats and Dogs Megamind from 2010 is... Wait, what? That's what IMDb said. Am huh. I wrong? I remember that as being a kid's animated film, and I wouldn't have said Cyrano de Bergerac, but I don't remember it that well. Yeah, I've never seen it. And then in 2018, Sierra Burgess is a Loser, apparently is also on Netflix, and that <laughs> is of the same theme. So there you go, folks. I did a little trivia hunting for you. Wikipedia, I think, was responsible for that little tidbit. Let's see. The title of the movie comes from a story in Plato's Symposium. The end credits include a thank you to the real Gene Jessel Schapp, who the aforementioned Becky Ann Baker plays, her English teacher. And that was the name of Alice Wu's English teacher, which served as a, a good inspiration for her. There are several references in this film and Wu chose the the director. Alice Wu chose them in part for their similar character dynamics in each. So the Philadelphia story, Casablanca, they all have a triangle relationship, much like Cyrano and this film. So Mike, kick us off. What is the pickup line of this film? The ancient Greeks believed humans once had four arms, four legs, and a single head made of two faces. Wow, that's lengthy. It kind of is. <laughs> And I believe that's a quote from someone else, not necessarily not supposed to be dialogue. Yeah. Oh, actually, no, it is her, be- but she's writing. Right. It's part of the establishing that she turns in the same paper for six students in turn for cash. Which is interesting because she writes papers for other people, but she doesn't even bother to write different papers. And nope. her English teacher 
just kind of waves that fact away. In fact, I think at one point she's like, she. I think the English teacher discovers that she's writing the letter for right. Paul, the love letter for Paul. And she goes, oh, this is why half the class is failing. So letting the audience know that the teacher is full well aware. Right. And there's a great point where she says something to the teacher about, aren't you afraid of being fired? And the teacher says, and I quote, you know, God fears the teacher's union, <laughs> which a, as a person who's interacted with the, the, the public school system, I can say, yeah, that seems about uh, clocks, right? I hope we don't have a huge They're untouchable. teacher listening. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're a member of the teacher's union, I would love for you to consider maybe not being so all powerful and letting some of the bad ones go. <laughs> Throwing that out there. It's interesting because this film and then we were just talking last week about Love, Simon, Mm -hmm. that teacher played by Natasha, was it Williams? And how kind of against type she was. You know, Mm -hmm. these these are the teachers we all would have loved to have had. Right. Right. It's kind of like Dave showed us the politician we'd love to have, but never will. Right. Right. So a little bit of trivia in the acting casting category. There's a photo of Ellie's deceased mother that's shown twice in the film. And this is, in fact, a picture of Joan Chen, who starred in Alice Wu's directorial debut, Saving Face. So there you go. There's a little spoiler that Ellie's mom dies. Very Disney of them. It's just dad. And the other little tidbit I liked was Leah Lewis doesn't speak any Mandarin. So Alice Wu recorded the eight lines that she has to deliver in a recorder so that she could listen to them over and over and over and memorize them. Okay. Because my question when you said that was whether we actually saw her speaking or whether they just used VO from Alice Wu with her facing away from camera. But apparently she did learn them phonetically. Yes, she did. So good job, Leah. Good job. What did you think about the cinematography of this? Because there was many different forms in this. There was like some animation. I feel like there was some stop motion. uh, Well, the opening credits had this kind of rotoscope kind of thing that I thought that was really clever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not maybe strictly cinematography, but I threw it in that section. They have a montage of Ellie trying to talk to a person at the electric company, which I thought was hilarious because the the use of a montage shows how long it took. Mm -hmm. It tells the viewer that this is just this ongoing, horrible thing. There was also this really neat montage of Ellie and Astro painting on the wall separately so each mm-hmm. one would come without mm-hmm. seeing the other that was kind of fun i was trying to figure out if we i was trying to think is you know how oh there's a there's a well-known film where there's writing on much similar to that so we were we to believe that they were writing notes to one another or was that kind of just i guess was that a, the painting know, what am i trying to say yeah the painting because it looked like it at times were after effects like it was just no i I think we were supposed to think that they were actually leaving leaving. the words there and they were basically flirting with each other via a wall okay okay and that's why the gentleman comes and kind of runs leah or runs them off yeah yeah because he's like oh you guys are probably the ones that are painting these okay yeah i didn't know if it was just supposed to be kind of in their minds or like maybe something that they were texting or i i get it visually why but i think because i thought i saw at one point one of the characters painted over it Mm-hmm. So it made it seem to me like it was actually written on the wall. I, I liked the writing because during that scene, 
I think we hear Ellie say, everything beautiful is ruined eventually. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman would come and he would paint over what they had written and then they would just keep writing. And so I think the last time where he painted like the biggest block over everything, we hear Ellie say that. And I thought that was well-timed. Yes. And it, it brought back the theme. I think there's actually, uh, this was written on there, something about the difference between a good painting and a great painting is five strokes. Strokes, right. And you're afraid that you'll you'll do one too many or something. And then, you know, basically his five strokes ruined it at the end. So I thought that was really a, a neat little segment and mm-hmm. it dovetailed well with the, the film. There is some really good lighting. So on Paul and Astor's second date, even though they're inside this restaurant, which I think was supposed to be our family's restaurant, the lighting is absolutely gorgeous. But then when Paul and Ellie are in the clothing store, mm-hmm. the lighting is appropriately sickly fluorescent. I mean, it was yeah. horrible. It was perfect. The one bump I had was there's a scene where Ellie is kind of stalking Paul and Astor at a horror film Mm -hmm. and she's lit. Her face is really well lit. And maybe they would say, oh, it's from her laptop. But I would think like anyone else looking in the theater would have the same reaction. Like, what the hell is this person? Why are they lit? Was she lit from the front? Because would they say it's the film? All the people around her were dark. She stood out. I mean, it, it made sense visually because it brought your, your eye to her. It just didn't make sense kind of in, in the scene. I think. Right. I liked how throughout the whole film, the use of kind of philosophy and art was used yeah. to kind of share everyone's experience. There were love quotes, like title cards from Plato and Oscar Wilde. And Ellie even said, like, this is not a love story. But yet the art and the and those quotes from those writers were talking about love and like this is kind of maybe a a love story in the sense of I think Paul and Ellie had a friendly type love, like a platonic. Yeah, platonic, right. And then but she definitely had a crush on what was her name? Aster. Aster, yeah. And to carry that further, Paul is almost anti art. I mean he is like yes. at zero on the art axis. <laughs> not not cultured it. In, the, in one bit. And I have to say, credit to that actor. I think his name is Daniel Deemer, maybe, mm-hmm. is the way you pronounce mm-hmm. it. He did no, such a fantastic job in that role because he played him as a simple person, but not a simpleton. And he was incredibly, at least it landed to me, earnest. He was so earnest, but he was so unsophisticated. And we do see him kind of through the film go in an arc where he becomes a bit more, but you also see that he's got a good heart. Like when they did the choo-choo train joke, he like ran after the pickup and threw something at them. Mm -hmm. So we saw that he had a good heart. He was just kind of simple and not not in like a, a dumb way, like he had a mental Right. Disability. It was just as a person, he had lived a very simple life. And we saw with his his family, there's this one scene where they're at dinner and there's like a dozen of them and they're all yelling. And he talked about, you know, he's going to go into the sausage business because he doesn't want his mom to be alone. Like, this is just like a salt of the earth, solid guy, small town, you know, but not evil. And as he talks to Ellie, he grows and he becomes a more sophisticated character. And I think that his acting was fantastic in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. He he definitely, I think at first I thought he was kind of just adult, but as the film goes on, you're right. In him talking about his family, like you said, his family was very important to him. He maybe wouldn't have gone into the family business of sausage making. Right. But knowing the generations that it had it had passed through and now he wanted to take that torch and carry it forward. 
but he kind of wanted to put his spin on it. So he created the sausage taco and he very much was invested in that. And he was trying to think of, no, this will be good. He was trying to come up with a new idea, but one that would be successful. So I think he had the smarts to know you can't just invent something. It's got to be something that people will gravitate towards. And so he, I thought he mentioned like young people would like it and, you know, older people would like it. Like, so he was thinking, he was showcasing that he wasn't just a simpleton, like you said. Although I guess one could argue that food is an art form too. So maybe he did have some art in him. I get, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Trying to be fair to the character. No, I know I'm being a 12 year old. You mentioned the Chugga Chugga Choo Choo. So uh, in doing the research, Ellie's character's last name is Choo. And so the kids tease her by using that. And Alice had an experience where kids would say Chugga Chugga Woo Woo when she was biking to school. So she put put this in the film. Her kids were kind of not that bright because Woo Woo is an entirely different thing than a train. I mean, they should have like thrown crystals at her if they were going to say woo woo. I I mean, come on, they're just not that bright. They could just leave the poor girl alone. Well, yeah, but if you're going to make a word related joke, you better get it right. Yeah, she didn't say they were smart. I wonder where she grew up because she there was a reference to Powell's and Squamish was a made up place. It sounds so much like an actual Washington city that we both looked it up. Like, oh, look it up on Wikipedia. Where is Squamish? (laughs) So under editing, Alice Wu was trained as an editor and she appreciated pace and rhythm. And so the conversation between Ellie and Paul in the car, they move from edited beats to one long single shot. And she did that so that we felt the power of their connection more. And we stayed with the immediacy of their two performances, she said. Huh. Interesting. I don't think I noticed that. Is there anything else in the writing or editing that you noticed? Well, I did like when he's first trying to convince her to write the love letters for him where she tells him, no, this is a bad idea. It needs to be authentic. And he says, I can pay more for authentic. (laughs) (laughs) Which I kind of, it just sounds like something that the stereotypical Hollywood producer would say, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Always Uh, thinking that money is the motivation for everyone. Right. And that just means that you're stubborn, not that you're in love, which I think really described his character in, in a nutshell, right? Because he wasn't really in love with Aster, we find out. He was more just stubborn. He had this idea. And then Aster says this interesting thing. She says, when you're a pretty girl, people want to give you things. What they really want is to make you like them and not like them in the sense of halfway on the way to love, but similar to them. And so they, they showed that with the girls that give her the scarf, mm-hmm. the plastics. And I think that's an interesting thing, a way to perceive that, the plastics. And I have to say, there was a pretty girl that I went to high school with who swore that she was not like that. But that because she was pretty, everyone assumed that she was part of the popular girls. And that was the only people who would talk to her. And I remember she was going out with this horrible human being. Just what a jerk. What a total asshat. And we were like, why? And she says, no one else would ask me out because I'm pretty. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting perspective. And so I kind of had a little simple sympathy for Aster there as that dialogue helps us see what's going on. But then there's a, a kind of a fun, fun interchange where it says, it shows he cares. And then Ellie says, it shows he's a moron, <laughs> which coincidentally is the last line of the film, moron. So <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of nice to loop that back around. But when she says it at the end of the film, it's in kind of a loving way. 
they had grown to have this friendship kind of love for each other, and they were unlikely. Uh-huh. So in some sense, that's really the true love story is between Paul and Ellie. Right. And that's what Alice wrote this about. She said in college, she had a really good, in college is when she came out and she had a really good guy friend that kind of was her safe space to be herself and her for him as well. And throughout college, they were tight. And then as happens with a lot of friendships that we make when we're younger, they just kind of, you go into your career and maybe you meet your partner and and then you kind of just grow apart and you sometimes can grow away from that person. And she said that it made her really sad because it was such a special relationship and it was, you know, that platonic love between. And and I think she also mentioned how people can tend to, I guess, associate like a best friend as being the same sex. And and she's like, no, actually, it very much can be the opposite sex and 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 there be no attraction or no. Right. You know, that those feelings don't get in the way. You're just good friends, just like one would be with maybe a same sex person. So that's kind of who she was thinking of when she wrote this. And I kind of I see that throughout the film that, yes, the relationship with either Paul or Ellie with Aster isn't as important as the relationship that we watch Ellie and Paul create as the movie goes on. Yeah, that's interesting. Just the the thought that we maybe limit ourselves with our definitions of kinds of relationships. But I have to say that if, let's say, they were both hetero, Mm -hmm. it might be difficult for their romantic partners to cope with that because there is just, again, this presumption of certain kinds of interactions. And that might be something we could talk with with superfan RJ. Yes. I also noticed, I thought this was appropriate for the time that it set in, that texting on phones became a huge part of kind of the the environment, mm-hmm. the plot of the film. Yeah, that scene where Paul and Aster are having, I think, what would be their first date? Is that like kind of their I, first yeah, official date? Yeah, I, I qualified date? that as a first date. Yeah, and and so Ellie is doing the, the, you know, the classic Cyrano. That's when she is trying to speak for him. And instead of like an earpiece, they're using the cell phone and Ellie is actually texting Aster directly. And then right. she'll text him and go, look down at your phone. And he's confused. And so it's it's a funny bit because he looks out at her sitting in the car and she just keeps saying, look down at your phone. Yeah, it is a comic bit. I just unfortunately didn't buy that Aster would believe that he was the one texting her because he wasn't selling it that well. So, I mean, I know that was necessary for the scene, but for me, that was a little bit. And I have to say part of that is because I've had people who are younger than me (laughs) tell me that this is a huge deal for people of those generations that on a date checking your phone is considered pretty rude and is cause for not getting another date. So uh, I kind of get it, but I kind of struggle a little with that. Yeah, you're right. And you pointed out, she gets the text and then he grabs his phone off the table. So we don't we both didn't believe that Aster would be naive or or non-observant enough to realize, right. wait, how did he text me when his phone's been on the table and he didn't touch it? Right. So it's a, it's a little thing. But I, in general, much like with Love, Simon, I think it's a challenge for us as filmmakers now to integrate this technology into our stories if we're setting them in a contemporary setting. Mm-hmm. And we've talked in the past about one of the things that drives dramatic interest is 
a time pressure, right? Like, mm-hmm. are they going to get it? But when you have a phone, you just text them, oh, we're going to be late. And so some of the things that were set up in the past are no longer really make any sense. So I thought this was a good effort at trying to integrate that technology into the story. Mm-hmm. I just have a couple things under sound. It says this is for viewers with the Atmos system, ATMOS. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know what it is. And so apparently... Wu had her sound design team add subtle creaks and moans in the scenes set in Ellie's apartment, which is above the train station. And so it's meant to give the impression that the building is old and settling in the wind out- against the wind outside, hmm. which looking at the building, we could see it was old, but I had never heard <laughs> right. of that sound system. But I love that maybe there's, you know, another level. It's almost like, you know, 3D, but maybe right. this is like a 4D kind of thing. I don't know. Sure. On the road to smell vision Yeah, right. And then I just made note of at the end in the church, when everyone is kind of confessing to their true desires, <laughs> that the the church crowd had a collective gasp. And I was just like, when does that ever happen in, real, gasp. Life? <gasps> in real life that the crowd gasps all at the same time? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Maybe one of our listeners, if you've been in a situation where people have gasped in unison, could you let us know? Yes. Oh, and to interrupt this episode, Superfan Lee has added, he thinks that our listeners should be called PAs. Oh, wow. That's a strong entry. (laughs) I thought he would like that. He said, he asked me, what's like an intern on a set called? And I said, well, it would be a PA or a production assistant. Well, for a really deep callback, we could call them associate producers for the gag (laughs) in state and Maine. Right. (laughs) Uh, Which I actually, actually now I like that that more, maybe. (laughs) Associate producers. All right. So Uh, we have two in the running. I don't know if we'll get this tied up, but I'm calling it out to you all who haven't submitted your suggestion what y'all should be called yeah super fan ernie you can go ahead and throw your hat in the ring there you go did you have anything else you wanted to mention about this movie before we moved on to our our end themes yes i do costuming i thought it was interesting choices of costume first of all ellie has nerd glasses so that kind of tells us that she's a nerd and her hair is in a ponytail the classic yeah, look. ready for the swan turn at yeah. the end of the but film. But we don't get, we don't really get that. Well, Ellie stays a Ellie a little bit. So when she it goes looks like to... Ellie wears boys' Levi's, uh-huh. which she has a fairly petite build, so that could work. Uh huh. But then when she tries to get Aster back near the end of the film, she dresses noticeably more feminine. So I thought that was that made sense with the character arc. But to me, when she keeps her clothes on to go in the hot springs. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Because that's a nerdy thing to do. Yeah. Well, and she's nervous about Aster's her crush. And And, so to be naked for the first time. And Aster's a stone cold hottie. I mean, she (laughs) obviously is going to feel, you know, inferior, right? So Mm -hmm. totally, totally, completely perfect costuming there. Right. I had something under costuming. I liked you were you mentioned the plastics and I thought it was funny how all of Aster's friends had this uh, different colors, but the same version of a long sleeve tight T-shirt and right. a jean jacket. So it was really subtle, but it was like, oh, my God, they're all dressed the same, which right. does happen when you have. And they were all blondes, at least bottle blondes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I thought that was funny. All right. Did we have any head trauma in... We actually have two. I didn't catch the time code, but Paul gets hit in the head by a football at football practice. He's been running everywhere with Ellie, so he's very good at running, and he takes off down the field, but unfortunately, because he's a simpleton, he forgets to look for the pass, (laughs) and it hits him right in the head. Classic. Classic 
head trauma humor. And then at the end of the film, Aster slaps him at one hour, 30 minutes, 48 seconds, when it turns out that he has been messing around, like uh, deceiving her this whole time. Right. How about a smoochie? Do we get a smoochie between Ellie and Aster? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. We do. We have an off-screen kiss that Paul says he kissed Aster, but we never see that. And that could just be adolescent braggadocio. Right. But we do see Ellie kiss Aster at 136.02. Yes. So. The payoff. Yeah. But they don't, well, I guess I won't, I won't, I won't spoil anything. You guys go watch this film. It's cute. I liked it. Did you like it? I did like it quite a bit. Yeah. It does not have a conventional Hollywood ending. No. But that's because I don't, I I say the relationship between Ellie and Aster isn't the primary relationship in this film. Right. That's true. But we do see the primary relationship that between Ellie and Paul does have kind of like a Hollywood ending at the end. Didn't he kiss her and she was like, what are you doing? I don't think he did, but I think he he tried to. Oh, maybe he tried to because he he said something like, because she asked, it was very sweet. How do you know when somebody wants you to kiss them? And it was cute. And so he says, well, they they lean in and they kind of give you a dumb look, I thought he said. Right. And so then he misinterprets something she's doing. And and so he goes in for the kiss and she's like, what are you doing? Might have been a little physical trauma there. I think she gave him a a little beating for that. Right. Is there a driving review? There's a little bit. So we have a fair amount of people in the truck bed not wearing any sort of seatbelt, which I just have to mention, I don't think is that big a deal, but probably should restrain yourself and your dog Uh if it's in the truck bed. It's a big no-no. Big no-no. Paul drives a Maroon 78 Ford F-Series, which I think is absolutely perfect because that's like a 40-year-old pickup. But he said he works part-time and he bought it himself and that it was exactly perfectly cast. So Aster drives an 83 Dodge Omni. And I was very curious because it looks like it's painted road sign yellow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I did did some research and that was not, in fact, a factory color. Mm. So that's an after after the job spray job. So So maybe she took it to Earl Shive. Yeah, I think 99, 99. (laughs) I think she did take it to Earl Shive and that's all they had. Or maybe they had that on sale that week. It was 79.99 if you wanted road sign yellow. Right. So we go to the numbers. Let's go to the numbers. Okay. So the half of it, like I said, it was done in the year 2020. I could not find any budget information. It was probably a bit of a indie film since they're really uh, outside of Leah Dunham's mom. There really weren't any recognizable actresses. So and being on Netflix, I have no gross information either. So let's see, we're just going to move on to the uh, the scoring. IMDb has it at 6.9 out of 10. And critics liked it on Rotten Tomatoes. It's 97% and audiences did too at 81%. So if you have not seen the half of it, I would recommend it. It's about an hour and 44 minutes. It's rated PG-13. So I think your tweens and up could definitely sit in on this. I don't believe that there was anything oh, no, untoward. It was a kind of a sweet little film if you're looking for something, like I said, with your family. It's listed as a comedy drama romance. It was done by the Likely Story Studio, which also produced In the Heights. So that was kind of fun. And Leah Lewis, the lead, won Best Actress. And Alice won for Best Narrative Feature at the Tribeca Film Festival. So congratulations to those two ladies who got some kudos. I think it also got some nominations, but I'm just looking for the wins. So that is it for this week. I hope you guys are 
enjoying Pride Month. You're going to Pride events. We're almost done. We are going to wrap it up next week with our episode of Wild Nights with Emily. And it is available on Hulu. So you can watch that film and then you can listen to our episode next week and then you wouldn't have any spoilers. And then we're going to have a bonus episode for you this month at the last Sunday when Wild Nights with Emily drop, we're going to drop another episode involving superfan RJ that was going to talk about all the films this month and kind of how true they were to reality. How was the writing? How was the casting? How do we feel about the choices that these filmmakers made? So that is it for us this week. But never forget, Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 